Do you want to explain what we're doing? Yes. Today? Yeah. Yeah. We'll do a hot open. Hello and welcome to the Crit 2022, the year in review. This is our hot open. Yeah, as a we're... Part, we've recorded some cold opens with some uh, behind the scenes chat, some off the record crit. Crit after dark. Crit after dark would be nice. It could be full of um, swearing and more salacious design. I mean, given that we are recording on the earliest sunset of the day, Crit After Dark will just be what happens if we don't get moving and get this done before (laughs) 3.30. Crit After Dark is (laughs) (laughs) 2pm. When we surrender to the night and move into the the seedy side of design. It's quite an unusual Crit, though, because we're recording in the same space for the first time ever, I think. Yes, live and in person. Um, thank you to Convene for hosting us. Yeah, it's very kind of them to host. It's it's nice to finally um, be together, like pen pals meeting. You're like uh, a small French boy called Thierry, who I've been writing to for years. And now uh, we're finally together, and I'm keen to hear about pomplamoose and baguettes. <laughs> I think we shouldn't we shouldn't lie to our readers. We have actually met in person. We've met, but we've before. never recorded. No, we've, we've never, never critted. No, we've never person. critted together. But what we're going to be doing today is running through 10 stories from the past year and this is tied to a new publication we've mm. produced which uh, is a companion publication I suppose to Desenio which is called Design Reviewed. Yes, it's a slightly different format. It looks very nice. We've actually handled um, the copies this week. It's hot. It is. Uh, well, what what actually are the dimensions of it? Because it's a different. It's a different size. Yes. It's not A four. Yes. <laughs> but it's not uh, A five. What are the dimensions? <laughs> Yes, it does have dimensions. They're smaller, smaller dimensions. Mm-hmm. Smaller, more portable. And yeah, it comes with a nice little dust jacket. It's sort of like a school jotter size, I suppose, or a technical manual size. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And Nice um, hand feel. Is hand feel a term? Like mouth feel? Yeah, well, it's got texture. It's got texture. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Bumps and lumps in the paper. We selected ten categories for structuring the design reviewed which we've decided to replicate in our annual review going forward because they are very useful categories for exploring design output they're not exhaustive i I think you could have other categories there are probably some omissions for instance and it will be interesting to hear what people think over time but they're reasonably comprehensive so we're we're going to be doing that today we're going to pick um 10 stories from across the year These aren't necessarily what we think are the most significant stories of 2022 or the best or anything like that. There's many things we've left out, which would be good to talk about. But I guess we've picked stories that in some way feel emblematic of 2022, that have a sort of 2022 vibe to them, and which maybe in some way speak of the current moment in design, or that's the aim anyway. It's also in the Desenio way, we're never um, trying to put things into a hierarchy. We're more interested in what design says about the moment and the context that it's being created in. So we're going to um, get going. Hope you enjoy it. 
So for the technology category, we have landed on the disposable vape. This is something that uh, I've certainly noticed becoming very popular this year. And also we had a fantastic intern this year, Natasha Campbell, who I believe she said that the the disposable vape would be the design of the decade. I think she said it's like... Um... Like, it felt very emblematic mm-hmm. of the past decade, that mm-hmm. in the way in which you might look back and sort of say, oh, the 2000s were the decade of the um, iPhone or something, that the disposable vape somehow mm-hmm. was reflective of of recent times, which it's kind of hard to disagree with. They're everywhere. Yes, they're everywhere. And we're talking about these flavoured e-cigarettes that come in very brightly coloured packaging. They're often flavoured. They have a built-in battery, um, but they are also designed to be disposable. There are other vapes on the market that you can refill, but these are single use only. And yeah, it's just this kind of strange phenomenon that seems to have come a bit out of the left field. I really don't like them. Whenever I've tried them, (laughs) I find it really unpleasant. I don't... Like, because I don't smoke, but I quite like cigarettes. I think the taste is nice. (laughs) You shouldn't smoke. Whereas, and I quite like that tobacco is quite an aggressive taste in a way. I really don't like how um, candy-inflected all most vapes are. I find it really, like, saccharine and unpleasant. And I find that a really confusing sensation of having sort of smoke going into your lungs and it being, like... um, a, a unicorn's puff or something that like very sugary and not into them do you oh. like do you like them okay if my parents are listening to this please turn it off now but i do actually give them a moment I... to turn off <laughs> I... okay the, blo- the okay, blocks the, have left they're now that the blocks are not <laughs> listening to this um yes because when i did smoke i liked to smoke vogue menthols and i always aspired to be able to to smoke Sobranis, those beautiful, um, brightly coloured cigarettes with the gold on them. So They're very attractive. Yes, but capitalism has really popped off with the Elf Bar, and as far as I'm concerned, I like the taste. I think the um, little fruity flavours in your mouth, it's like snacking. <laughs> it's so bad. A little fruity pop, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're not for me, but I do think they are an interesting tech story from the year. Mm-hmm. So... It's quite rare to see new things coming up in the personal tech space. It's in recent years become very iterative. So a new iPhone every year, a new Google Pixel or whatever. You don't see massive change. It just sort of adds features and refines. Um, So it has been this interesting thing to see vapes go from something that was not very cool and got made fun of quite a lot. And they were seen as this slightly... um, silly sad technology to something which is now quite trendy and certainly among some demographics anyway these things are really in um you mentioned it before the current biggest one is elf bar and that changes over time like i remember not so long ago back when we did decennio 25 jewel was the really Mm -hmm. big one and natalie kane wrote a, a really excellent story about the way in which jewel had use design to cement its position in the market. 
But Jules Carnival's hat now, isn't it? Is it even still actually, going? They, uh, there was a report in October in the FT that they were looking at filing for bankruptcy. Mm. So I think they almost, because they were the first ones, they were the ones that the um, US regulatory authorities could kind of move against. And even though they didn't ban them, I think that it kind of whipped up enough of a panic that they may have lost the market share. They're also, Jewel is owned by Altria or Altria, and they own Marlboro. So oh, they were okay. the kind of the, the big tobacco attempt at making making that, whereas Elf Bar is a Chinese-based brand. Yeah, so we should set out the differences between mm-hmm. those two. So Jewel was kind of, you bought the e-cigarette and you'd have different pods which you would plug in. Elf, Elf is different, right? Yep. Um, well, you can get uh, refillable elves, but the oh god, but, <laughs> oh, I know. God, but there is the yeah. the one that we are talking about in this is the single stick that uh, you cannot reuse. There is no way to refill it. It is kind of iPhone like in that you can't really look under the hood of it. It's just this kind of single thing that um, I mean the user journey is incredible. You just. You pick your flavour, they've got a picture on the box on the outside of what it looks like, you open it, there's a single foil package, you rip open the foil package, then you have the vape. It's got a little plastic cap over the end and over the mouthpiece, you take those off and then there's nothing, no buttons, you just put it to your mouth and inhale and it immediately activates the system. The system, of the, 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 the system, system of the body, or the, or the system of the elf bar. <laughs> the system of the elf bar. Yeah, and it, it, it activates the body. Yeah, as well, and you don't filling it with, uh, <laughs> with nasty elf. chemicals, giving you popcorn lung. <laughs> What's popcorn lung? Oh, it's this. Um, it's this medical condition that workers in popcorn factories used to get. That, yeah. Um, basically, does horrible things to your lungs. And it's come back because of elf bars. Oh, really? And other vaping products, allegedly. Oh, wow. I should say. It's it's not good for you. This is not an endorsement. Do not smoke children. (laughs) You shouldn't smoke. But saying don't smoke children, I think is really important because this was an issue with Juul as well. Juul was marketing-wise kind of targeted at younger people. And I think the same you can say of elf bars, right? They're super colourful, they're poppy, they're kind of fun and fresh. If you look at them, like it, it's targeting a younger demographic, right? There's yeah. no two and ways also, about that. There's been investigations as well into kind of marketing on TikTok. They have been sending them to kind of brand ambassadors to kind of spread it around organically because TikTok is still the wild west in terms of advertising regulations that's the sort of thing that they've managed to get around and obviously TikTok's demographic is quite young as well so if you're marketing your product through influencer marketing on TikTok you are just marketing to a younger audience. Yeah which needless to say is pretty unethical it's a really horrendous thing. I think one of the other things though uh, uh, leaving aside questions about vaping and the business model in general there has been so much discussion in recent years in tech about planned obsolescence the need to make products more circular you know if, if your tech devices aren't going to last for too long then they ought to be things that can be easily taken apart and recycled that's not elf bars, right? There's there's no design consideration as to what happens to these things at the end of their lifespan. They're sort of single-use tools. And that's kind of a, a, astonishing that 
in a time in which we're so aware of the need for tech to change, one of the big tech products of this year completely flies in the face of that and just ignores all of it. Yeah, and I think it really reveals this huge gap in policy because the onus is not on the designer or the manufacturer. The onus is actually on the importer to register this with the kind of like relevant recycling authority. So in the UK, that's um, Waste Electrical and Electronic Equipment Recycling, or WEE for short, oh, which lovely. is very satisfying. It's very sweet. But um, yeah, the, uh, there's been an investigation from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and they found that they could basically find no record of any elf bar importers registering these products. So they do need specialist uh, recycling. Like you should not just throw them in the bin. You should um, be. Oh, they've got lithium-ion batteries in yeah. those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I first heard about Elf Bars because um, I was living in the countryside at the time, and I was just finding them by the side of the road. Like people were chucking mm. them out of their car windows. I mean, maybe that's a good point to stop. That's our technology store of the year: Elf Bars. So our second category is ecology, which is quite a broad category, but I suppose it's a way of getting at the manner in which design engages with landscape and ecosystems and things like that. And one of the things that really caught our eye this year, I think through a number of projects, um, but we'll mention a couple in particular, is beyond human design. And this is the idea that design needs to be considering more than human need and reflecting on that and should also be designing for non-human species so animals plant life i think landscapes as well would you include in non-human design trying to design for whole ecosystems and yeah basically anything that's kind of like living that isn't just uh experiencing a structure as a as a human as a human <laughs> and it's 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 become really big uh so there's a nice exhibition which i think is currently open in beijing which is a good example of this uh which is called the planetarian it's curated by anushka vandril and anjao and it's brought together projects from a number of designers whose outputs are not necessarily anything directly targeted at human ease um but rather things intended to prompt reflection on our footprints on the earth or else designs intended to confer benefits on other species and landscapes. So in the former category, I guess you'd have people like former Phantasma and their Cambio project, looking at timber and wood and engagement with that. On the other side, you have Claude Everett's uh, Spots On stickers, which are stickers you put on glass so birds can see glass and they don't fly into it. And Planetarian is a really nice example of this, but um, there's been so many this year. There was Daisy Ginsburg's Pollinator Pathmaker. You went down to see her at the Eden Project. I did, Project. yeah. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, Pollinator Pathmaker is the idea of designing gardens, not for human pleasure, but rather gardens designed to help pollinators. So thinking about what do pollinators look for? What kind of mix of plants do you need? It's it's a nice idea and I think quite a provocative one. Mm-hmm. The New Institute um, declared itself a zoop, 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 um, a zoop, like a zoop. co-op, but with zoo, zoological creatures. I assume. Yeah, the idea that I, they, zoo is in everything. Yeah, I think this um, idea of 
an institute should consider non-human species and mm-hmm. uh, systems as well. Yeah, and they've appointed a spokesperson as well to kind of speak for the for the non-human. They have, yeah. Decision making. There was also the Driving the Human Festival in Berlin that I went to, where a lot of the projects about living in the future climate crisis encouraged um, encouraged visitors to kind of take on different perspectives. Um, which I think is this kind of uh, this theme that's almost like building empathy for the non-human into your design. Just um, I think a lot of designers are encouraged to think about the user as obviously the person that will be making the purchase. But um, I think it's this idea of finding like a generosity in design, just taking on a different viewpoint when creating something. Yeah, I think Daisy Ginsburg is a very, very good speaker on this. And she has a really interesting example about um, PET bottles, for instance. They're, they're a great design in a lot of ways. They really hit the brief. They're <laughs> cheap to produce. Uh, you can do them in huge numbers and so on. It's just the problem is the original brief for that didn't give a fig for the environment. So obviously, in lots of ways, it's a really bad <laughs> design because it's so ecologically damaging. Um, but the problem is those things were just never considered in the past. So like you say, I think this is an attempt to to try and weave in that greater empathy, to try and weave in that broader, more holistic position. I think it's a positive development but it's also something that I I think this has become very zeitgeist and buzzy this sort of beyond human design and I sometimes worry a little bit I'm really drawn to that idea you hear a lot of now which is the best design is no design like often the best thing designers could do is just leave things to hell alone and don't step in or intervene Uh, there's no need to just constantly produce and make more I think it's become this way of addressing the climate crisis uh, without actually addressing it or by dealing with our anxiety about it. So designers can deal with their anxiety about their role in the climate crisis by using design to reframe these like perspectives. And then visitors can also, um, you know, come away with like a more hopeful feeling because they're taking the perspective of kind of the the victim in the Mm. climate collapse. And I do also worry there's that kind of like slightly uh, eco-fascist line of thought that's coming through about like, oh, like if humans just disappeared, like the earth would be fine. Um, Whereas like, you know, obviously these big institutions probably can't do what I would like them to do, which would be to, uh, you know, do a whole exhibition about how we should depose all of these corporations because if any like the only people that should really be like thinking what life is like for a microbe in the arctic ice is like the ceo of shell my worry is that it doesn't contain enough revolutionary zeal and it kind of falls back into this sort of the earth knows what's best for her uh language that kind of elides the like very real suffering of like people and animals in the face of extractive petrocapitalism. Mm. But I guess I guess an argument for it is it could be it could be a good communication tool. Mm-hmm. Like of course you have to be uh, wary about it and, and and reflect on what does it miss out? Does it make things to uh, does it make things palatable at the expense of dealing with their nuance? But I know, for instance, the curators of Planetarian they would see that exhibition as about climate collapse. That's mm-hmm. what it is. The problem is 
when you talk about climate collapse, it, I mean, it shouldn't feel distant, but a lot of people still feel it is very distant and they tune out. And I think the idea is if you talk about beyond human design and start bringing in the sort of needs and desires of other species, of other systems, maybe people engage a little bit more and it offers them, it offers them a route to think about these issues. I don't know whether that works. Who knows? But I I guess we've got to try everything. But yeah, that's our ecology story of the year, Beyond Human Design. I expect to see more of it in 2023. So for our object, funnily enough, we always struggle to pick one for this category, despite it being the most obvious design one. But I'm really happy with what we've landed on for this. So I'm really excited about this one. It's the Ghent Waste Brick, uh, which was designed and certified this year by the Belgian authorities. Um, it is part of Kamadi Grok's plan to do a, an extension for the Ding, which is the Ghent... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, it just sounds made up. I know, the D-I-N-G. It's the, um, the Ghent uh, Design Museum. Okay. Um, they are building a new wing and as part of the brief was to make sure that it was as kind of low carbon and sustainable as possible. That's good. The... And I think that's important for a design museum, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You, you like... kind of need to walk the walk uh-huh. as well as talking the talk. But the problem, I think, with a lot of ding like the new... Dong. <laughs> ding Ding the bell. Um, when you build new, you're often creating a, a lot more waste. And what they have done is they've taken construction waste from the city so crushed up concrete um white glass and 63 percent of the brick is made out of this construction waste from sites around the city yeah i think it's a really nice project and i think it does speak to 2022 and a lot of considerations about the way in which we're building the way in which we're engaging with waste if you look at pictures of the waste brick I think it's quite nice. It's quite unusual. It's very pale grey, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Quite a, like the ghost of a brick, which I suppose is kind of what it is, right? It's sort of <laughs> dead materials that have come back yeah, <laughs> to <I don't>... haunt <laughs> Ghent, uh, but in in a positive way, maybe like a Dickens ghost to uh, to warn people to change their ways. Uh, and it's really nice because that colour is is generated through the waste of Ghent. Mm-hmm. It, it, in a sense, this is a vernacular material from Ghent and I think that's really fabulous that they're building with it. I mean it reminds me a little bit of a project I saw this year which is in Design Reviewed which is um, the Potato Head Resort in Bali which is a resort entirely built around using waste materials and understanding that the waste generated by tourism is now as much a part of Bali's material palette as rattan or ijuk or any of those sort of indigenous materials. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all this kind of um, like actual circularity in design. It's kind of the polar opposite of the disposable vape. Another exciting thing about the Ghent Waste Brick is that it's not fired in the kind of traditional brick making oh, sense. Isn't it? No, it's um, it's lime. It's got like lime in it, and it cures in the air. And actually, <laughs> like salmon. <laughs> But as it cures, it actually gains its strength by sequestering carbon from the air. Oh, okay. That's so it's actually taking carbon out of the air and then locking it into the brick that then will be used to build the building. It's nice uh, because it, it's not always that common that we get good projects on the crit. Often we pick things which are problematic <laughs> in some way because that often leads into debate, which is important. <laughs> but it is nice to see something where you can say oh I, I just think this is a good thing this is interesting and 
does engage with wider discussions within design, but it's an example of someone doing it well. Should take the other thing I find encouraging about it is it's not totally isolated. There are other projects like this. I mean, along with the Ghent Waste Brick in Scotland, you have this startup, I think it's called Kentotex K Brick, uh, which is similar. It's 90% construction waste, uh, which would otherwise end up in landfill. So that's very good. I think it's being certified mm-hmm. this year or there mm-hmm. or thereabouts. Uh, there's a Dutch startup as well named Stone Cycling that uses 60% construction waste to make bricks. Um, and <laughs> I think you told me about this. Did, did they do a, a Starbucks? Yeah, so part of the construction waste that they use is like ceramic toilet bowls and they use their toilet bowl bricks to make a Starbucks drive through Very nice. It's just what you want to be thinking. <laughs> it's where you want to be after your morning coffee, um, <laughs> thinking about the toilet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's nice that this is becoming sort of a trend. And because of, you know, construction laws, each country needs its kind of local manufacturer to get certified. Um, I mean, you know, there is, I think the debate that's perhaps like more negative or more contentious that this taps into is this... Um, adaptive reuse versus demolition Mm. and rebuild we're getting um, a lot of kind of conversations where developers are insisting that they need to knock things down and build new because old buildings are like really bad in terms of their energy efficiency Mm. and you can build a new energy efficient building but then in demolishing it and constructing you're just creating so much um, embodied carbon that actually by the time we reach all of our kind of 2050 climate crisis cutoff points, you know, it, it will be too late. There's a nice exhibition on at Reaver at the moment called Long Life Low Energy, curated by Pete Collard, which deals with this in quite an interesting way. Has that very famous example of the eco Sainsbury's, that Sainsbury's that was built, which was supposed to be the most efficient ever. But they built this huge eco structure and, and then it was demolished about 10 years later or so. <laughs> like it completely wiped out and um, Pete's included that in the exhibition and it, it's, it's a nice way of looking at it. But yeah, and also the Ghent Waste Brick, they're being very um, open source about it and they're going to be holding workshops where members of the public can come along and make a brick for the project which will be completing in 2024 so yeah no this is a something that we're excited about this year and hopefully going to see a lot more of hello crit listeners we're pleased to announce that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by maison les objets paris's premier design fair as we approach the end of the year you may already be thinking of the next in that case, may we suggest that a visit to Maison et Objet is an excellent fixture to book into your diary for January 2023. This year's show is curated around the theme of Take Care, with Maison et Objet's team drawing inspiration from the ways in which objects and spaces can help to look after our mental and physical health, as well as caring for nature and our built environment. If that sounds of interest, then simply visit maison-objet.com to find out more. The fair is open for trade visitors only from 19th to 23rd of January 2023 at Paris Nord Villepont. Super early bird ticket sales end 2nd of January 2023. So, get your tickets for Maison et Objet now. (laughs) 
So from something manifestly physical as as meaty and real world as a brick, uh, we're moving into our interface category, the world of the digital. Um, I think this was a really easy choice, actually. If if you're talking about interfaces in 2022, it's very hard to get beyond the rise of those deep learning text-to-image models. I think DALI 2 is the best-known one, or the, or the one that sort of captured the public imagination and has almost become a shorthand for these things. It's not the only one, though. You have stable diffusion as well. And these things went really wild this year. Um, this idea that you could generate imagery based upon natural language descriptions. So you type in something like, I don't know, Patrick Schumacher designing McDonald's in a skyscraper, and it would give you a version of what that might look like. Yeah, it's I am so on the fence about this because on the one hand, I'm super fascinated by AI and its applications. And there is like it is really enjoyable and exciting what you can do like this, especially these kind of like you were saying, you think of a designer and then you apply them to a kind of like genre or an oeuvre that they have never touched. So mm. um, there is a researcher, his name's Johnny Darrell, and he trained the AI to imagine what um I'm going to massacre his name, but like what Jurodowski, what the set would look like if he had directed Disney's Tron. And like, <laughs> oh my God, the, the images are incredible. Yeah. It's kind of wild. Uh, the, there was another one where he uh, got it to imagine what kind of Soviet style propaganda posters for Afrofuturism would look like. Yeah, so there's this ability to create all of these images from just like doing prompts and it was interesting that you actually verbalize some prompt ideas there because there is apparently also this sort of miniature ecosystem that's springing up for writing prompts for people oh definitely some people are better at it than others Mm -hmm. learning the kind of prompts that get a good response and how you can phrase things that is quite interesting i i have to say uh, we're going to talk about some of the issues with these things in a little bit first maybe praise them slightly (laughs) like they are funny and they are kind of fascinating and it is amazing what they churn up i should say i really like the aesthetic of some of them i mean it's interesting because they developed even over the course of this year and are becoming more and more accurate i quite like the slightly rubbishy ones i like it when people's faces look very like scrunched up and off in them i think that's quite an interesting aesthetic i really like the sort of slightly odd placement of objects and things within it, that the images are very realistic in some ways, but they don't <laughs> they don't kind of obey regular physics. So things are slightly floaty. Things are just like plonked in places which almost don't make sense. Visually and aesthetically, they're quite nice, right? Some of these things. They are quite interesting. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that um they get and they get to this kind of like core issue with technology which is that um you know it's kind of can it pass the turing test can it convince me that it's human and but because we're humans and we just love patterns they know Mm. how to produce something that we recognize and it instantly resonates and we go oh i like that even if then you look closer and you realize like hands is the one thing that they really can't get yeah they're bad with hands so that's like a tell if if there's a, a person with hands in it it will have like seven fingers and look really strange and weird but when you first look at it you're like oh wow this is 
this mm. is it. And similarly, these kind of chat AIs where you can have like a really convincing conversation or you can get it to write you a poem in about one topic in the style of another artist. Um, or you can get it to write like a script to your favourite TV show. And it's very um, amusing, I think. It, like it, we've created something they're that, like, really tricks t- right yeah. they're, they're still kind of in that realm and they might become more significant but at present yeah you're right there's like there's a pleasure in seeing it there's a pleasure mm-hmm. in messing around with it but you still like need a human they are kind of mechanical turks in the sense that you need a person to operate it like you need someone to be like giving it the prompt um the ai then, whisperer and then you need to be like cleaning it up to like present it and also, like, you, after you've looked at, like, a couple of them, you kind of, you get, like, a sense for what they look like. I mean, I do think it will be interesting from, like, a design media point of view that I've worked places where we had problems where, like, perhaps studios weren't as honest about whether something was a real photograph or a render. Yeah, that's and true. And it became very hard to tell, um, especially with, like, internal kind of, like, interiors shots Production values for photography and um, kind of the ability of computers to render something that looks realistic were kind of meeting in the middle Mm. and almost one wanted to look like the other. And so you had to become like very good at like telling when something wasn't real. And I do think this is going to like throw another layer in the works of being like, oh, is is this something that like a designer has like, digitally rendered themselves mm. or did they, they just get really good at like did using... they get good at dali <laughs> is this an original dali but i i guess one thing which is an issue with these um with these systems is so much of the discussion around them and excitement is on this idea of like liberation and expansiveness and the possibilities that sense of you can make it create literally anything you can get anything out of it and that's true in some ways but I think you also have to um, see the ways in which these systems are very constrained and exist within and function within pre-existing social um, systems so for instance these AI are trained on public data sets now, one of the issues with those is that those data sets are often biased. So those biases echo down through, like perhaps they, um, you know, those biases might be racial, they might be gender based in terms of what this AI is trained on, what it is uh, trained on in thinking about. So like a really basic example of this might be if you're training an AI on a data set around faces and thinking about human faces, well, what faces are represented in that data set? If those faces are predominantly white, then you're going to end up with an AI which really struggles with race and there will be consequences to that. So, yeah, equally, we know that a lot of like AI surveillance technology is um, trained on refugee populations or like prison populations, like people who can't really consent to uh, being used to it. So they are not uh, able to ever kind of reach beyond the very flawed data sets that they're being trained on. And also a lot of the time they're being trained on people's original artistic content. Like mm. um, I know a lot of artists are really upset that their work has clearly been used to like train these like portrait makers where you upload your face and then it like will be like here's you in an anime style here's you in a fantasy style here's you in like a manga style um and you can almost like see like signatures still like 
Um, I think in some you can see the signatures mm-hmm. still. Yeah, yeah. Uh, equally, some of these chatbots, they uh, there's worries that they're training them using the archive of our own, which is the kind of like free internet uh, fan fiction like repository. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> the chatbot is being trained on all my terrible fan fiction. So good luck to them. But there is real worry because a lot of um, a lot of like big uh, like film networks really want like more fanfic around their content to promote it, and that means that they could have like you know a chatbot that would just write them fanfic, just slash fiction round the clock. Yeah, I mean, I think they probably will want to filter for for the, the not that. I think it could no, go no, terribly wrong. No, 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 that's wrong. pure slash fiction. <laughs> it is a very sexy chatbot, isn't it? It's, it's very focused too on... Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's really kind of got to this, like, zenith of um, kind of copyright and the internet being seen as this free-for-all, but now in the sense that it's now just like a free resource for um engineering companies who want to like train train their their ais and there's nothing really you can do about it and that's our interface of the year (laughs) our body category is um quite expansive it's sort of anything to do with the body which can be wearables it can be fashion but it also can be kind of medical tech or biohacking or sort of um, uh, things that help with accessibility. For for this one, we decided to go with uh, sports bras. Uh, this is because I'm a big fan of sports bras and Ollie, you're a big fan of football. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but you are, bo- you are boycotting I, I the current know, football. I, I, I'm boycotting the World Cup and, and I think Qatar is are, are going to feel that. I think they'll be aware <laughs> Stratford's are. not on board this time. Uh, I, I, I know a bit about football. I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I... I <laughs> I like the transfer market. <laughs> I find it exciting. It's astrology for boys. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I can chip in with some football knowledge, particularly uh, particularly if, if, if any uh, exciting transfers are involved. Um, but it, it's an interesting choice sports bras yeah because this is the kind of iconic image of chloe kelly celebrating the winning goal for england at the euro 2022 final it was like this huge moment um for kind of women in sport for women's football amazing image quite Mm -hmm. iconic sort of her wheeling away ripping off her top and, and celebrating it's a really great moment it also opened up this really interesting conversation because not only did kind of sales of sports bras and interest in women's football like skyrocket after this, but um, it actually turned out that these um, these sports bras were prescribed to the team members. Yeah, and I thought that was such an interesting story. That had been talked about a little bit before the tournament as well. There'd been some discussion of this, but obviously with that image drawing so much attention to sports bras there there was a lot um there was a lot of uh, focus afterwards so the bras were prescribed to each team member by breast biomechanic experts at the University of Portsmouth part of a program where more than 100 athletes were advised on the proper fit of getting sports bras that actually fitted them and gave them the support they needed. Uh, I think it was overseen by Professor Joanna Wakefield Skur who led the project and um 
the results were what you'd expect. Uh, she spoke to The Guardian and said that the athletes found once they had sports bras that properly fitted, they obviously felt more comfortable. And when you feel more comfortable and supported properly, you're able to do the activity better. So they were able to train for longer, for instance. It's fairly basic stuff, but things that haven't really been considered in the past. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I don't actually think the design itself is basic. Like, I think they are... Like, they're specialist pieces of equipment. Um, And, I mean, I know, like, when I was doing sport as a teenager, it was, like, impossible to find um, one that kind of, like, fit. It was very expensive. I had to go Mm. to, like, a special um, bra shop. It certainly wasn't, like, high street brands. So it's really cool that, you know, Kelly's bra was a Nike one. It's off the shelf. You can go out and get it. Um, I think it's interesting that it looks like one of these kind of cute crop top compression bras but actually um uh wakefield skirt said that it's one of these ones that inside it's actually got a little bit more engineering um and i do think the kind of athleisure wear fashion trend has uh led to a lot of kind of like oh this is a cute little like sports bra and it's like the least supportive thing you've ever seen like yeah it wouldn't like you know contain anything so uh, you know <laughs> <That they're>... lies <laughs> It is a pack of lies. lies. You know, maybe you can like lounge around in them and it'll be comfortable. But to actually do a kind of underwire free sports bra that you can, you know, because you have to be able to breathe in it. Like you don't want any like restriction of movement. You want like, but then at the same time, you want absolutely like no movement from the chest. Like I think it's a really tricky thing um, for designers to work with. You know, you need materials that can like compress and stretch at the same time um it's got to be durable you know I think it's like you know an exciting challenge and I hope that kind of going more mainstream means that like industrial designers and clothing designers will be able to experiment more with the form yeah I think you you mentioned earlier these were described as being prescribed and that feels quite important that's interesting use of language around it because often when you get to elite level sport the equipment they have is totally inaccessible to people you know it's so tailored to their individual body it's very much not off the shelf and what's nice about this is everyone should have access to sport everyone should have access to exercise and garments like these sports bras are really important for that and it is just this idea of prescription it's finding one that actually suits your body and is going to enable you to do that and I think that was something quite powerful about that moment and about that tournament that it it's it spoke to that really nicely and and just showed the importance of this. I mean, you mentioned materials that stretch and compress. It's an exciting area for designers to work in. How can you enable people to be healthier, to exercise? What do you need for that? What materials can you use to help it? Yeah, and I think also there's still loads more to do. So there was a report published last month in Sports Engineering um leah williamson the captain of the uh women's england football team she was one of the co-authors um and uh they were looking at these kind of high rates of injury amongst women athletes because Mm -hmm. uh football boots and balls aren't designed for their bodies so um you know women tend to their feet are shaped slightly differently their heels and arches particularly so if you are wearing boots that were designed with men in mind then you are running a higher risk of stress factors or knee ligament injuries you know heading the ball you get like different types of like head injuries um all these kind of factors where if you are just like 
playing or working in an environment that's designed for only like a certain segment of the population, you run a higher risk of injury. So I think it's really interesting that these are kind of coming to light and hopefully like sports designers are going to have a whole new like range of challenges to work on. So our next category is policy. This is looking at policies in countries, companies, areas, cities, which impact upon design. And the one we've picked isn't a huge story. It's it's fairly small, but I think it's an interesting one. This is Harlem in the Netherlands, which banned meat adverts from public spaces to try and reduce consumption and greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously, the meat industry is a huge contributor to both of those. And the ban is due to come into effect from 2024. So from then on, in public spaces in Harlem, you won't be able to advertise meat. I think like this is a good idea and it plays into this kind of wider ban. So also like holiday flights, fossil fuels, cars, anything from that other kind of they're also banned. <clears throat> I think um, a, a Harlem councillor from their Groen Links party um, who was involved in like drafting the motion, the amazing name Ziggy Clazes, said, we can't tell people there's a <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> name, it name sounds, alert. It sounds like an iteration of Bowie. <laughs> Ziggy Clazes. <laughs> it's like a yeah. period in his life. Um, so... So Ziggy said, we can't tell people there's a climate crisis and encourage them to buy products that are part of the cause, which I think is a very good sentiment. My only um, point is that I find a lot of the um, beat alternative adverts really, really annoying. (laughs) Oh, they're incredibly annoying. They they are incredibly annoying. I don't know if Harlem is facing this problem, but like overly familiar and overly willing to make jokes. Um, There's a certain fake bacon brand that shall remain nameless that makes me almost apoplectic with rage because one of their adverts that they've got up in bus stops at the moment is like our parents may have had like affordable homes but we've got affordable fake bacon and I just don't it's too soon it's not funny (laughs) (laughs) it makes me a vegetarian of nearly a decade want to go out and eat a pig. Yeah, I, d- I don't know why you get so much of it in the vegetarian and sort of vegan space. You, you see it in oat milk as a lot as oh well. Oatly is oat very milk. famous mm-hmm. for it with its mm-hmm. wackaging, that effort to make the product zany, and it's inc- incredibly annoying. It's so grating. However, I think it's a good policy, and, and I think that reasoning is good. If you're talking about it being climate crisis, you shouldn't be then allowing people to go out there and be really heavily marketing products which feed into that. I think that's quite a sobering thought for design in general. Uh, we know design is in as a field has a lot of implications in production and manufacture, has a big impact on climate, and there's a lot to consider there around what we're promoting, whether that's really acceptable. Design as a field operates around trade fairs often. Lots to unpack there. But I I specifically want to zero in on meat because I think that is interesting. We talked earlier about designing for non-humans and regardless of your position on the ethics of meat, I I don't eat meat, but we're not getting into whether people (laughs) should be vegan or vegetarian. It's a separate thing. But I, I think most people would agree that the meat industry as it stands 
is not necessarily a hugely ethical place or a hugely ecological place. It reduces animal bodies to products, essentially, products for consumption. And and that's a very strange thing, because whatever you think about meat, I think most people would agree, like, well, it it shouldn't be a product in the way in which you know, other things are products. These are these are living bodies, well, were living bodies being reduced to meat. I I guess I have, like, a slightly different perspective, having, like, um, grown up in a farming community that um, I think a lot of people at the sharp end of meat, like, the meat industry and the dairy industry care very deeply about their animals. They have this, like, very oh, I don't close connection that. about them. No, but I think, actually, the kind of the villains here are supermarkets and... Um, who have been kind of pushing down the prices, who have been um, selling meat as this like essential that, you know, it's not a meal if you don't have meat in it. I think there is a way to eat and consume animal products in a way that is like good for the environment. Like I think like going back to the I I would would say that I think you mistake what I mean. I, (laughs) I didn't I didn't explain it clearly. I agree. I'm not complaining about farming communities or anything like that. What concerns me is the industrial meat industry, for instance. But I do think, like, I would like the ban to perhaps, like, not be on, like, meat, but, like, maybe on, like, supermarkets. And, like, so that would free up the space for, like, independent, like, retailers to be advertising all of their products. Because I think the problem... You know, it's kind of going back to this, like, the conversation about the beyond human and, like, are we targeting the right thing? Like, I do think it's, like, good to, yeah, like, holiday flights, uh, car manufacturers. Those are the sorts of things where, yes, they probably shouldn't be making as many things. So, like, reducing their capacity to advertise is really good. I'm just a bit wary of being, like, all meat is inherently bad and, like, doesn't care about the animals because I think that is, like, the product of, like how the system is working currently. Mm, yeah, but I, I don't think anyone is necessarily saying all meat is inherently bad and doesn't care about the animals. What I'm saying is I, I think there would be ways of consuming meat much more ethically than mm. the way in which a lot mm-hmm. of people consume meat at the moment. But the the policy is interesting in a way, and like I'd love to dig into it more and perhaps we can start doing this next year to understand what is covered by it, what counts as advertising, for instance, is like if there is if there's a farmers market hosted in Harlem, are they allowed to, you know, have like a billboard? Well, not a billboard, you know, like one of those little signboards saying what they're selling. Oh, like I don't know, like or th- when we started talking about it, I definitely was thinking in terms of like, you know, big signboards like billboards on the side of the road. But I, I guess there is that discussion around well, what counts as advertising? What about influencer advertising? Maybe they're just gonna have to get all the like Instagram girlies to like pose with their Eating with steak. Eating steak. <laughs> Eating steak around the clock. Um yeah, I mean it's an interesting and there's there are also questions around where this places responsibility, you know, like is is this sort of putting too much on consumers and positioning them as if it's their responsibility to sort these situations out or should you be looking at more systematic changes to industry itself there's a lot there but yeah maybe we should look into the policy a bit more see what there is so for sister we've got something that's really fighting the system um i think one of the big trends of the year especially in architecture and kind of in every industry has been unionization and strikes 
Um, we've talked about this before on the crit, so we don't need to get into it in huge detail. Um, I did a report over the summer for Disegno 34 um, about how architectural workers, especially in the UK and the US, have been um, kind of really getting into the union movement. And right after we were published, we had the news that Bernheimer Architecture in New York had a union. Um, and that was like a really positive note because the year started out on a kind of like sad one after like the shop union effort had to be cancelled. It's been a really interesting year. Yeah, it has. Uh, you saw it in the UK as well. Uh, the London-based firm Atomic Architecture organised a strike ballot, which was supported by UVW Saw. Uh, United Voices of the World, section of architectural workers. And that action was in response to management threatening to make redundancies after a dispute over pay. I think generally, as you say, 2022 was a year in which these things came to the fore in all sorts of fields. But it was very nice to see it in relation to architecture, because I think for a long time that industry has had huge problems Poor pay for junior staff, very long hours, abuses in schools. There was the Bartlett report, for instance, workplaces too. And just in general, levels of creative burnout in these in these fields, people having enough because they they are such a slog at times to work in these areas. So it was it was good to see these discussions start to come out a little bit more. I think I think it remains early days. I think there's more that could be done, definitely, but it's it's been exciting to see people coming together and starting to take collective action, start to discuss these topics. Yeah, starting to see themselves as workers. And obviously it's coming out of like a really bad place in the economy. I think this kind of the almost social contract of the creative industries is breaking down. It used to be that, you know, oh, you could struggle for like the first few years, but then it would be okay. And like, it wasn't ever really okay. That actually created some like really high barriers to entry as we talk more about diversity um, in design. Like part of the reason like it's very undiverse is because you're not going to make much money for the first like 10 years of your career. And that is immediately a barrier for anyone coming from a different background or who has dependents or like family they need to support. But now that the cost of living is so incredibly high, that's not really tenable. And I think like senior management haven't really got with the time. So it's really interesting to see these conversations happening and, you know, a quite like anti-labour movement sort of culture at large getting challenged because, I mean, there's just, there's so many strikes planned just for this month alone yeah it's all over the shop i mean in the uk what train strikes postal strikes nurse strikes paramedic strikes uh university lecturers teachers really goes on in the us you had the rail strikes which uh, president biden intervened in the end in the end to prevent that yeah which um i i think in general he described himself as pro-union but Mm. said that in this case the economic damage (laughs) you're grumbling it's going uh, going to damage the economy because that's what withdrawing the labor that's what it means like people are going to be uncomfortable and if if you strike and it up your economy then you should probably give those people sick days yeah which and that's that's a pity uh, the deal which biden pushed through for rail uh, rail workers is an improvement in some areas but one mm. key thing is it doesn't mm. y- you can keep saying mm, all you want <laughs> i'm trying to explain what it is <laughs> 
but does it, it, it has no provision for paid six six leave paid sick leave um these these issues become all the more prominent or the more difficult with the cost of living crisis I think there is a degree of security in unionization and collective action and it's been one of the uh, positive aspects of 2022 to see people in the creative industries perhaps begin to wake up to that a little join a union Okay, so our media category, this covers books, exhibitions, films, music, games. Uh, the one we've picked is uh, a film, actually, um, and, and it, it's a pretty mainstream film. We're going to be talking about Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever. We're not saying this is the most important design film of the year, but I think there has been a really interesting design conversation around Black Panther. So the original film came out in 2018, and it was an important film for all sorts of reasons. Um, obviously resonated to have a black superhero. Uh, that was a really important moment, I think. It was also a cast, maybe this has been spoken about a little bit less, but it was a cast that had a lot of prominent roles for women. There were women who were strong and superheroes within that too, which is not is still relatively uncommon within that genre. And it was also a big part of it was the production design and the presentation of Wakanda, this fictional African nation, but a presentation of that country as being progressive, technologically advanced, but also very proud of its culture, of being a progressive, technologically advanced nation, but not just modelled on, oh, it's America in Africa or something. It, it was very defiantly an African nation and speaking about that. And a big part of that success and why people got so on board was the production design, which was from Hannah Beekler, who I think did a super impressive job of building up that country of Wakanda. And you had actually spoken with um, Hannah as part of this roundtable that you put together for um, Designio 32, which was focused on the um, Afrofuturist period room at the Met, which I think was such a interesting concept for a room and I think also connects directly to what you're talking about with Wakanda and this idea of um, creating sort of imagined spaces that use reality as a jumping off point so it's a period room but it imagines what would happen if um, this historically black neighborhood in New York had not been bulldozed to make way for Central Park yeah being able to like imagine imagine ways of living that aren't entirely kind of westernized and yeah destructive. it was an interesting challenge to the museum as well because that room was premised on the idea that when you go in and see period rooms within museums they're presented as if they're real but of course they're all fictions they're mm -hmm. all created and they present a very skewed version of history for instance so they wanted to lean into that a little bit and use fiction in a different way it was built as an Afrofuturist period room and when the curators of that room started to think about it and started to think about putting it together, they turned to Hannah Beekler to come on board as co-curator because they felt, well, this is what Hannah has done with Black Panther. And I think that's quite an interesting move in its own right because you wouldn't normally think of like a Marvel movie as being this progressive, critically engaged thing. 
But I think the fact it was so mainstream, it's such like a pop culture movie and had such wide distribution, that was really interesting because it resonated so widely. And yeah, Hannah came in and, and, and I think did a really excellent job on that room, brought in a lot of very interesting black artists and designers, paired that with a lot of interesting historical artefacts drawn from the Met's archives. It's also prompted new collecting initiatives at the Met to try and get the work of more black artists in that museum. A a really important project, I think. Yeah, and like a really interesting way of like using fiction and speculative storytelling so having seen black panther 2 how is wakanda looking had it had you know what's like design wise what was there that kind of stood out to you yeah well it's not totally different it's definitely building on the same world so Mm -hmm. same as all of these film you know it's it's a slightly bigger film perhaps than the first one which tends to be the way of sequels more More characters (laughs) although it's also influenced by the actor who played the Black Panther, Chadwick yeah. Boseman, uh, sadly died. Um, really so it is quite a moving movie in a, in a way because it feels very much as a tribute to him and the supporting mm-hmm. cast have all stepped up. Uh, but it was very nice to see some familiar designers in there. So Jomo Taraku, who was a member of that roundtable, who's represented in that Afrofuturist room, some of his chairs appear in Wakanda this time round. So that's a lovely thing to see to see different styles of design being represented because often when design is in films, what we're seeing are they're the quite modernist pieces, right? You see Eames chairs all the time and, and things like that. And what I quite liked about Black Panther and you see it in um, Black Panther 2, it's really, really nice to see the presentation of a black design aesthetic on screen. And choose my words carefully they're a black design aesthetic there are hundreds you know this is one particular example but to see that presented on screen to see it be celebrated to see this some of those design pieces like what Jomo does which are very influenced by his upbringing in Ethiopia for instance and to have that put forward as desirable progressive contemporary design I think is a very very good thing the biggest change from Black Panther 1 is that we also see a new nation. <laughs> yes, this is the like... Another the... vibranium-rich nation. Uh-huh, vibranium the... being the source of the Wakandans' technology. And it's uh, the year 3000, not much has changed, but they live underwater. <laughs> it <laughs> as, is. As the prophet um, busted once sang. This is Talakan, And this is a nation which is supposed to be under the Atlantic Ocean, hidden from sight. Mm-hmm. And it tries to repeat the trick of Wakanda, basically, but with Meso... Meso-American? Meso, sorry. Meso-American. Meso-American civilizations, And that's interesting in its own right. It's it's nice to see different design aesthetics, different cultural traditions be represented and put on screen and celebrated. I think it's a bit less successful, Uh, one, just because of the oddity of the film, that it has to present the civilization, and then there's that proviso of, but it's also underwater, <laughs> which clearly makes things more difficult. It's very hard to do that. But I think it sort of highlights almost the success of what they did with Wakanda in the first film, because that did feel... Um, traditional in some ways it lent into some craft traditions and displayed that but it also felt very contemporary and up to date it felt like it was 
you know, within reason, because obviously it's futuristic and sci-fi, but felt like, oh, you know, feels like it could be a sort of contemporary um, society. Talakan is not so much that. It feels very much like they've stuck an Aztec city underwater and there's a couple of lasers. It maybe feels less... Um, well integrated with and i suppose that's part of it because pelican is meant to be this hidden city that's grown up separately um but you you maybe don't have quite the same level of success which is a pity because that's a really good thing to do to highlight those mesoamerican civilizations yeah which i mean apart from the road to el dorado i can't really think of any sort of like huge blockbusters that really engage with the idea of recreating um a, like a mayan city and I think, you know, perhaps having two big futuristic cities was, like, perhaps, like, a, a big stretch, even for, like, the sort of budget that I imagine. A Marvel Panther budget. Two. Yeah, the Marvel budget. But um, I think what is, like, good about these films is, like, they are setting a precedent that you kind of... There is that sort of, like, trend with, um, especially, like, big movies to kind of cherry pick from the aesthetic of a kind of like non-western design tradition or like period of history Mm. or like geographic area um but then just kind of like pinterest board it and do it on like vibes rather than actually like i think what is like really exciting about about panther 2 is like yeah like actually picking out designers and using their work not just like ripping off the like look and feel of something So for our phenomena category, we have something that we've uh, kind of nicknamed automotive add-ons, but really these are kind of subscription fees for cars, but not in the way that you'd have thought. It's such a weird thing. At the same time, now that I've thought about it, it does make sense. So 2022, this kind of really went mainstream. BMW introduced a um, set of subscriptions, including one for heated seats in certain markets. So... You've bought a BMW. It has. The... I'm doing well. <laughs> I know. Hypothetically, come on. Imagine here. You've you've got your BMW. It's got heated seat capabilities. But in order to unlock this, you have to subscribe. So for like one month, it's fifteen pounds. Two years of a warm bottom will set you back two hundred and fifty pounds. Or um, you can purchase it as a one-off, unlimited air quotes access pass it's 350 pounds but that is um footnoted for as long as the vehicle's technical prerequisites are met oh what does that mean i assume it means that like if the technology becomes obsolete they don't have to guarantee you a a warm bum (laughs) oh odd yeah like maybe it'll be like phased out bmw is no longer supporting warm bums yeah yeah programmed obsolescence for your hottie body (laughs) (laughs) Um, then, uh, you know, when this came out, we kind of laughed about it on Design Line, our weekly roundup on designyourjournal.com, uh, kind of thought maybe it'd be a one-off. Then Mercedes-Benz last month announced that they're bringing in an acceleration subscription fee for the US. So if you pay $1,200 a year, uh, you can accelerate from 0 to 60 miles per hour a whole second faster I will never understand why people care about things like that. I I can't imagine being there and just think this would be so much better if it was a second faster. 
I, I, I guess there must be. Uh, I presumably I they've be done very, research. I would be very easy to upsell. Like once you've got the car, what if you're like, you're at the like stoplight and the guy next to you is revving his engine and you want to like it's Clarkson. You know, pull away. <laughs> yes, it's Clarkson's Jeremy initiating Clarkson. a drag race. Are you not just like there on your subscription app? Like yes, like bang! I want to pay for that. Like maybe not over a grand, but if it was just like one pound tap your phone and you can pull away faster than Clarkson I'd be tempted I guess you see it in games as well in phone apps notorious for Uh this right the option of oh you can buy this thing that will help and that does work on people so yeah perhaps perhaps this does work perhaps there is a market who this really resonates with I mean 2022 was definitely a tipping point for this you saw so many the examples you've given I think are some of the more notorious ones um, but late last year, December 2021, Toyota started offering a, an $8 monthly subscription to use its remote key fobs. Mm-hmm. Weird. Um, I think patient zero of this mm-hmm. is Tesla, which brought in a $2,000 acceleration boost option on its app that unlocks... <laughs> <laughs> it unlocks a higher 0 to 60 uh, for, for its car owners. It's not a subscription, but it did open the door a little bit for automotive designers to make technology that already exists in these cars locked behind a paywall. Yeah, and like we said, it was really kind of surprising because you wouldn't think of cars as something where the subscription service model could really have embedded itself because we almost were getting to these discussions around, you know, have we re reach peak subscription service, you know, you can subscribe to everything from your toilet roll to your snacks. Um, You know, it used to be just like Netflix. Now you've got Amazon Prime, you've got Disney Plus, you've got all these different things. Um, These micropayments that kind of like gradually drain your bank account. Um, And, you know, this idea that um, it's kind of disruptive and like modern to rent everything instead of like buying and owning it. I think people in most sectors are starting to push back against it. We saw kind of um, 2022, the sort of return of the cassette tape for music fans. So vinyl is now very expensive, hard to get hold of. Um, If you have like Spotify or Apple Music, you don't own the music. You Mm -hmm. can only access it as long as you keep paying every month. Um, But if you have a cassette tape, you own it and you can keep it and you can play it. I find the cassette tape thing really irritating. (laughs) I I agree with the sentiment, but it just seems the most performative, hipsterish thing to get cassettes. If it's good enough for Taylor Swift's Midnight's album, it's good enough for me. (laughs) I think the thing I find really irritating is... I I think there are some things where subscription services would be disruptive and would be really progressive and a very good thing. For instance, I know a lot of designers have spoken about this. A lot of the stuff you have to buy when you have children, for instance, like booster seats, things like that. Products which are sort of essential, but you only need for a really short period. That would make so much sense to be a rental in a a way. For that to be, you don't buy it, it perhaps moves between different people. You don't own it because you only need it for a short while. But that's not not where people are applying these subscription services. Well, they they actually are. There was a company called um, Whirly that sadly went under this year, which was a subscription service for toys where you could subscribe, rent them, send them back. But the problem is, is that's a physical product and shipping... 
and storing and maintaining physical products is actually really expensive. Mm. The money is at software as a service. Uh, so that is exactly the situation with cars where it's not that if you subscribe to heated seats, they send you like seat warmers out. It's in your car. You are just paying to unlock a bit of software. Mm. And that is really cheap. Like it's already there. It's already been designed into the car. You're just like paying to feed it to the right bit of code to unlock that ability, which costs nothing to the uh, to the company. Yeah, it's it's a very depressing trend, I think, and we'll probably see a lot more in it in future. It would it would be interesting to know whether designers are under pressure to build these things mm-hmm. into what they're doing. Are they being asked to create things which can be locked off, for instance? And um, it will be interesting to see if it leaks out of automotive and into other areas with smart tech, for instance, when people are buying objects, will features suddenly start being locked off things that in the past used to be included as standard now become optional extras we'll have to see as as you said you talked before about reaching peak subscription i wonder what will be the moment when kind of enough is enough and people turn on this sort of thing yeah i think like it really risks eroding people's trust because you are going to be more likely to buy an analog object that can't ever be kind of put behind a paywall so from uh, transport villainy to transport good our final category is space and we've actually gone with the space we also picked for design reviewed number one uh, and this is the new elizabeth line when we were talking about this category and what we wanted to choose as a space for 2022 We wanted something that felt reflective of the year. And I think we talked earlier about creative reuse. We we didn't want to pick a super flashy new building, for instance. That felt inappropriate in an era era of climate collapse when everyone knows we need to get better at reusing buildings. Um, So we didn't want to go down that route. We could have picked a creative reuse project, but perhaps the biggest and best well-known is Battersea Power Station which we discussed. So that was off limits. So we instead we wanted to do a space which I think felt very public facing, a different kind of space and something which is maybe unusual to even think of as a space in some way. And this is the actual train for the Elizabeth line. And it's also something that we've both seen. So it's it's easy for us to like have a nuanced conversation about it. So the train is part of Crossrail which is a 73-mile train line development that runs all the way across London from east to west and out into the countryside. Mm. It connects to airports, it connects to Reading in Berkshire, Shenfield in Essex and Abbey Wood in southeast London. It cost £18.25 It was not cheap. It was over budget. It was over time. And it's a talking point as well when lots of other areas of the UK have had public transport projects cancelled or not Mm -hmm. received funding for London, whose public transport, I think, is pretty good on the whole, at least compared to a lot of places, receive another new line. But the line is very good, I must say. The line is good. And they did say that, like, it would already, like, when it opened, it would be over capacity, but I've not been on it and it been packed. It does serve a lot of people. And, like, I I mean, I do think we should be investing more in northern cities. But for me personally, it's made my life 
so much easier. My family lives in the West Country. Um, getting from one side of London to the other to get to the right train station is like really hard or it was really hard, but being mm. able to move from Liverpool Street to Paddington in under 10 minutes, like that's really made like a material difference to my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is what we wanted to highlight with it, that it, it it is a space that is doing quite a lot of public good. I mean, there are lots of spaces within it, mm. we should say, and there's a lot we could have focused on. I mean, all of the stations have been designed by quite prominent architects, mm-hmm. Wilkinson Air, Hawkins Brown, Weston Williams. And they're really nice, right? The stations are, they're quite consistent across the line. You don't get the variety you maybe get on some other lines. They're all this sort of... Um, muted grey concrete, a lot of perforations as a pattern yeah, appearing. Very Stanley Kubrick, a space odyssey. very Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> but it does look cool. It does look nice, and there are some differences between them. Like, we caught the white... We went into a Whitechapel together the other day. We did indeed, on, on the way to on our one of our jaunts. <laughs> and uh, I really actually... I like what they'd done with the station art. They'd got a local artist who worked in, like, collage, and then they'd blown them up and cut them out in aluminium. So, um, yeah, no, I, I like the little details. Yeah, and I think there's a lot there that architecture fans can... You can go around those stations and you'll find different things to appreciate, things that you feel work really well, things that don't work so well. But we didn't want to talk too much about the stations because I think, one, they've had a lot of coverage. Mm-hmm. They get a lot of coverage with the big architects are involved. What we wanted to specifically focus on is the train itself and to treat that as a space, to treat that as an interior because they're often not discussed in that way right yeah and i think um so matthew turner wrote about uh this for design reviewed one and he had a really interesting um a sort of lens of looking at the train interiors as this kind of extension of public space and private space so um that obviously it's it's pretty public i mean you have to obviously pay to get on it and it is getting more expensive but once you're on it it's almost like it's people's living rooms like people are going about their daily lives like you've just got this like snapshot in time where people are commuting or um traveling places they're tourists they're locals like it's this kind of very interesting intimate space and it's you know it's been a while since like a new train interior typology has been designed yeah and I, th- I think part of the issue is when when we in design and architecture media write about spaces and interiors and so on what you see are often very sumptuous spaces they're spaces mm-hmm. which you're only in very briefly maybe it's an amazing restaurant or something or a beautiful museum which those things are important i mean maybe no they both are important <laughs> i had a doubt on the restaurants but people should be able to enjoy restaurants if they want to but these are spaces which only harbor you quite briefly right mm-hmm. you you go in for a little bit a train and the tube in particular is something which you spend a lot of your time in if you live in london same it's as any city to think about <laughs> how many depressing. hours of my life have i spent underground in yeah. the tube <laughs> like a mole <laughs> but i think the other thing is So many of the spaces we write about and talk about are spaces that receive people at their best. You know, you've made a special trip to go there. You're excited Mm -hmm. to be there. What I like about the tube as a space is it sees people in all different states. You're there maybe when you're tired in the morning, when you're stressed and harried getting into work, maybe when you're drunk, coming home in an evening, you're high, whatever. Like, these are spaces which have to work quite hard. They're receiving huge numbers of people 
every day. And they aren't people who necessarily want to be there, you know? Like, you might be tired, you're grumpy, whatever. Some people went on dates on this line, specifically just to see the new train, but that's unusual. Normally, it's kind of you're going there as a, as an in-between space. And trying to design for that, I think, is really fascinating. Yeah, and to design something so hard-wearing, I think it's really interesting yeah that the designers managed to kind of factor that into their program so this design of the train was done by matt project office in collaboration with edward barber and jay osgaby and i think the results and this was matthew's conclusion as well in the piece are really very good it's it's quite a quiet space it's not showy or ostentatious but it does feel a bit more premium than some of the older tube trains, for instance. Some nice material. Tube deluxe. <laughs> tube deluxe. Uh, this, the grab poles, for instance, are stainless steel. Um, I think it's brushed as well, if I remember mm. right. Is it stainless? Yeah, it's a brushed stainless steel. Uh, so it's a material that will wear well with age. There's very high density plastic for the arm uh, rests, which are also two tiered. So two people sat next to each other don't have to compete as to who gets that. The seats cantilever out from the side so you can clean under them more easily. Just very basic things, but things that make the experience of actually using that space better and more pleasant for everyone involved. Yeah, I like that as well, like considering the cleaners as well, because like going through and cleaning the trains is such a like huge task. So it's nice to like have all users, including the workers, like included in the design process. Yeah. And I think one thing which should be mentioned and deserves some recognition is I, on Matthew's piece, I did a couple of um, preparatory interviews for it, for instance, speaking with designers, speaking with TFL. And I don't think it's any surprise to learn when you're designing a train for TFL, there's quite a lot of constraints. There's so many health and safety things. There's so many cost considerations. The tube in its own way has its amazing design history, which you have to try and fit into. It's a design job where... Um, you're quite controlled in terms of what you can do. So I'm sure if MAP had carte blanche, the train they ended up with might look a bit different. But I think to do something within that space where it is so challenging and for it to be as successful as it is, is an amazing accomplishment. But we've come to the end of our review of 2022. We've mm. been through our 10 categories from Design Reviewed. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to hear more, why not pick up the new issue? It's available on our shop on desenojournal.com. But we thought we'd sign off with two categories we had last year, which are just fun ones. Our favourite categories. This is Design Villain and Design Hero of the Year. At Design Villain, there was very little discussion around. We were, we were pretty... It was only ever going to be one person, wasn't it? It is Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. <laughs> uh, and I think we agreed that, like... After, like having covered all of his design transgressions this year like maybe we can just have an amnesty and not have to think about him at all next year but the one thing the one silver lining i can take away from elon musk's behavior um this year is that actually people do seem to be genuinely horrified and i was worried when he came into twitter and he did all these like redesigns and fired loads of people and kind of he's even he's the boss from hell He'd be awful to work for. Yeah, but like they, no one's tried to reframe it as like, apart from his fanboys, as like him being like making tough decisions for a tough market. Mm. Everyone is agreeing that like 
he is all for. Like, he's redesigned some of the um, meeting rooms at Twitter HQ to be bedrooms so that people, like, have to sleep at work to be, like, super hardcore. Um, All of these kind of very delicate systems that actually I don't think I appreciated that Twitter um, had for all of its safeguarding, all of its um, moderation, um, all of its kind of compliance uh, system designs just, you know, out the window. Entire teams just like thrown away. Yeah, and I think that's why he's specifically our design villain of the mm-hmm. year. It's not the worst thing. There are worse things about Elon Musk in terms of labour abuses oh, yeah, and, and so also, on. Also, his Teslas keep catching fire and the steering wheels keep falling off and they keep running people over. So, like, his other designs are bad too. But the thing which was so frustrating was I think there's been a lot of work to try and start seeing platforms like Twitter and a lot of these um, platforms and interfaces as sophisticated designs, you know? The very very complicated they have a lot of interlocking parts and all of those things it's if if you change one thing it affects the whole and elon musk was so annoying this year because he behaved as if that wasn't the case you know he did this whole thing of i'm going to come in and free speech is going to reign on twitter with no consideration at all for the fact that making changes within that ecosystem is actually really complicated if you start stripping out content moderation then advertisers are going to go suddenly you're going to have um, huge issues of how to fund this Everything has a knock-on effect and his behaviour just sort of flattens all of that depth and that's why we specifically don't like him this year. Yeah, like hopefully this will be like the death of the move fast, break things ethos because that's not good design. And I think we may now swear off Elon Musk for a while. He's done. Let's have our design hero of the year because this is much nicer. Yeah, this is much nicer. Um, And there's kind of, you know, like a person, but also like a community that I think is really great to mention again. um, I did a roundtable with them for Desenio 33. It's all in awe. They are a community interest company um, that uh, was founded by Ava Feldkamp um, last year. And they uh, bring together um, all kinds of designers, so architects, graphic designers, um, writers, uh, kind of photographers, and they connect them with um, anyone around the world, kind of an NGO, a nonprofit, who is in need of good design services. Yeah, I, I think it's a really beautiful. Um project all the people involved set up by Eva Feldkamp Mm -hmm. so I I think a particular um, praise for her but so many creatives have come on board with this and and I think a couple of things really resonate one it's just nice to be nice right (laughs) it's it's good to pick like a a feel-good story but this was set up with the idea that having access to well-designed spaces having design as part of your organization shouldn't be something that only wealthy corporations can afford that design shouldn't be for the one percent it should be for everyone so uh, clap 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 for that message Mm -hmm. that's important and the other thing I really liked, we talked about it earlier when we were talking about beyond human design, mm. that sometimes the best form of design is to do nothing at all. And I like how small some of the interventions all in all make are. I mean, ever when you led that roundtable said, sometimes what we do is just helping make someone make a PDF. And it's that uh, having that awareness that designers have skills which 
even on a really small scale, can make a big difference. You don't have to design with a capital D. Not everything needs to be a huge project. Sometimes it's these much smaller, more discrete interventions that can make a big difference. Yeah, this idea of like radical dependency, like to be able to need each other and help each other, I think is something that's like really comforting in some quite difficult times. So our design hero of the year, and that's it from us for this year. Thank you very much to Convene, we have to say, mm-hmm. who've hosted us today for this recording. They've enabled us to be together at last <laughs> in, a, in a podcast room. Um, so we recommend you check out Convene. And we will be back in 2023. Yeah, no, thank you to all of our subscribers, our readers and our contributors. It's been, uh, it's been a big year for Desanyo. Have a happy holiday and we will be back I've done that already, haven't I, really? See you in 2023. Yeah, see you in 2023. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crypt. I've been your host, India Block, along with Ollie Stratford. This episode was produced and edited by Evie Hall with assistance from Lara Chapman. Our theme music is composed by Yuri Suzuki with Team Suzuki at Pentagram. And our logo is by Leonard Rothmoser. 